1: Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. This is the weekend review. My name is Ryan Bailey, and over the next hour or so, we'll be recapping the big action of the weekend, and indeed, the action that did not take place. Joining me to do so is a Manchester United fan who's only guilty of trespassing in our
2: hearts,
0: Taylor
1: Rockwell.
2: <laughs> that is true, and I, I would like to state that publicly and for the record, because I'm not trying to go to jail. Who is? Who is these days? Huh? <laughs> in this economy. <laughs> exactly i always appreciate that old rejoinder in this economy
1: just to make it clear you weren't at old trafford or in the in the uh, greater manchester area this weekend right taylor no comment very good let's uh, <laughs> let's hope you have some more comments as this hour unfolds joining taylor and i is a man whose campaign to put
3: scottish soccer on the running order continues with reckless abandon it's graham rudman and I've, I think I've succeeded this week. I think we're gonna, I'm gonna mention it in entry time mentions. That's all I could wangle of you guys, but I appreciate it. <laughs> all the same. Hi Ryan, how are you? I'm
1: very good, thank you. I'm sorry for teasing about the Scottish soccer. It's just like it feels like old firm
3: derbies are coming along like buses at the moment. <laughs> well, that's what happens when the TV broadcasters decide the structure of the league and they make sure the two biggest clubs in the country play each other every uh, every month. So yeah. I think that's the fifth one this season. so
1: And that's sounds a quiet quite, season.
3: Just, just 12 more to go until the end of the season. Yeah. yeah, we've only got 10 more in the final month to fit in.
1: Yeah, I think there's another couple this afternoon, so we'll look forward to those. Um, that league structure sounds super, if you don't mind me saying,
3: Graham. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it was the inspiration for uh, another league there that I think you might be referencing. Oh.
1: Yeah, well, See, you
3: maybe. all are joking. Now I'm actually wondering,
2: like, did they look at that and think, yeah, we want that. Every weekend, we need an old-firm derby, but between yeah. uh, Bayern Munich and Barcelona. Let's make that yeah. happen.
3: Between the Scottish Premiership and MLS, the biggest clubs yep. in Europe got together and thought, that's what we want. We want that. Uh, which I think is the it's first time <laughs> maybe anyone has ever looked at those two leagues for inspiration. Yep. <laughs> 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 I can I imagine one team that isn't
1: in on that plan is Celtic because I think they've had their fill of old fern tarbies as we'll get to uh, later on Gents why don't we start off talking about the big story in soccer over the weekend the game that didn't happen the postponement of the biggest fixture in English soccer Manchester United against Liverpool we were expecting that one to take place uh, 11.30 Eastern on Sunday it didn't happen of course we had protests at Old Trafford and also protesting fans from Manchester United at the Lowry Hotel where the, the players stay before Matches and indeed where Jose Mourinho lived full time, <laughs> Alan Partridge style, while he was uh, while he was is manager of Manchester. <laughs> I think I, I think I'll, he might have left when he moved to London, but you know yeah. maybe he's got maybe the, the, the Mourinho suite
3: is still active. Yeah, I like to think that he was woken up by the protests and a member of his coaching staff banged on the door and thought that they were there for him. Uh, have you ever seen Muppets Treasure Island where Billy finally <laughs> gets woken up by the pirates who are handing him the black spot? It's been a minute, but (laughs)
2: that just,
3: wow, that's one of those like movies
2: I haven't thought about ever. And as soon as you mentioned that, I'm like, I do remember that scene. That is terrific. I was going to go with a different movie reference of, I like to think that Jose Mourinho and the Lowry Hotel are just The Shining. And he's just been there since the beginning. And you go back and you can find photos of him angrily denouncing waitstaff and things like that. (laughs) <laughs> well i hope if, if he was woken up by the protest
1: he was doing that cupping his ear thing and leaning out the window that would have been a nice sight for for, for everybody to see um and like graham we're barely five minutes in and you've brought it back to scotland again with billy Connolly. well done keep that coming keep that coming we need a race between you two for scotland versus
2: wimbledon references
3: <laughs> i've got more of those coming in this segment actually sister so, so, so no. buckle up t-rock well See, the thing is, Scotland has already claimed Wimbledon, but not uh, not Ryan Bailey's Wimbledon, the other Wimbledon.
1: <laughs> Britain. Britain, Graham. When, when he's doing well, it's Britain, okay? When he's doing badly, it's Scotland. This is Andy Murray referencing, by the way. Anyway. We are um, on track. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to the thing All we right. were talking about, the protests in Manchester. This was a case of... Direct action achieving its aim. We've had fans uh, coming out on Monday saying the the aim of these protests were to disrupt or to cancel this fixture, um, uh, which has been controversially received in some quarters and and championed in others. We're going to have a little powwow about that shortly, but I've got the Premier League statement here, a part of it. We understand and respect the strength of feeling but condemn all acts of violence, criminal damage and trespass, especially given the associated COVID-19 breaches. Fans have many channels by which to make their views known, but the actions of a minority today have seen no justification. We sympathise with police and stewards who've had to deal with a dangerous situation that that should not have taken place in football. Um, We can get to that later and the justifications for the actions and whatnot but I just wanted to start off gents but to talk generally about why this is happening and obviously the European Super League news has been a bit of a catalyst for this but it's something that's been going on much longer for 15 or 16 years uh, at Old Trafford at Manchester United Um, this is this is the Glazer takeover that's was it 2005 Taylor was it around that time that sounds vaguely familiar Sounds about right. Fifteen or sixteen years ago, when 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 uh, the club was taken over, uh, this is uh, the accusation that the uh, at the Glazers that they are absentee owners. They haven't invested their own money into the club. They put Ed Woodward in charge, who's essentially an accountant. They've leveraged the club's finances. You know that they 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 took over a successful and profitable club via a leverage buyout, and consequently they put lots of debt on it. Uh, millions of pounds in debt, in fact. Uh, the uh, the numbers from 2019, the net debt at Man United was 380. Four million, fifty 50% up year on year it was in 2019. Uh, and, and even little things, I, I was noticing in the protest guys, I've completely forgotten this, but they took football club off of the crest. Now it just says Manchester United. It used to say Manchester United football club. And that's a, a subtle change that people people were um, referring to uh, in the protests. And also an, another sign I enjoyed, um, millions to the glazers, but when it rains, the roof leaks, which is mm-hmm. a, a funny sign. But also it does refer to the fact that Old Trafford, Old Trafford is a little bit decrepit when you compare it to other yeah. top European stadiums. They've spent nothing on it. Literally, the roof leaks during uh, when, on rainy days, which in Manchester is around 364 or five days of the year. Um, so that, that was that, have I done justice there to, to the hatred, Taylor, if you want to take up here as the
2: resident Man United fan? Yeah, I think so. And I think it, it also goes back to even before the Glazer takeover because for a while there, there were rumours that Rupert Murdoch was going to buy the club and that, I, as I recall, was kind of put down due to fan reaction and protests and, and organised movements against that happening. And so I think when the Glazer takeover happened... That same level of frustration was there and has been since, as you've pointed out. And anytime there's sort of a big moment, um, I think in 2009 or 2010 there was a they had to like restructure the, the loans, and there was some speculation that maybe banks wouldn't approve it, and that was when we saw the green and gold movement happen. Mm. So there's been this kind of persistent frustration with the Glazers, but then there's been a feeling, I think, that there's nothing really to be done about it because. They're absentee. They're not at the games. You're not blocking them from getting into the stadium. You're not causing them any problems when you protest outside their homes. They live in the U.S. And so this maybe was, as you said, Ryan, the kind of moment where it felt like, okay, we can rally around this. The Premier League has said, like, if you don't want this to happen, you have to show your vocal opposition. Uh, They did not include that in their statement, I noticed. uh, But that seemed to be the way the Premier League went about uh, organizing resistance to the Super League. And kind of now here we are. We are indeed. Now, there was uh, some some people who, who went a little further than
1: others. We saw the corner flag being paraded around Manchester at some point, And I think Stan Collymore was documenting where it was in the city at any given point, which was quite amusing. But we did see some more unfortunate actions. We saw uh, some TV equipment being wrecked. Uh, I don't think that was wholly appropriate, but maybe it summed up the mood in there. Uh, some security railings thrown around. We saw some bottles hitting some police and horses, some cameras being broken and some... Um, COVID protocols being broken, by the way, the COVID, it's a little more draconian than it is in the States, still in the UK, the restrictions at the moment. Um, and when when you break in and trespass in some place and you have the opportunity to legitimately wear a mask and cover your identity, but you don't, that's
2: uh, that's an it's interesting one for me. It's a choice. It's,
1: a, it's certainly a choice they've made there. It's certainly a choice. Um, the Greater Manchester Police has said two officers were wounded. They'll pursue those responsible for those acts, criminal damage and the trespassing. Graham, what's what's your take on how this is being received in the UK? It seems like there's a, a lot of what, there's been some tutting at, at, at some protesters who may have gone a bit too far, and but also some championing of you know the, the, the whole point of protests, protests like this is to disrupt. The, the whole point was to get the game called off, and to do that they had to get into the stadium. They had to ruffle some feathers of some kind, and you know um, there's there's been some differences there in the way it's been portrayed on TV too, right, Graham?
3: Yeah, and I was watching that unfold on uh, on Twitter as it happened. Was that the, the difference? I was watching Sky Sports coverage here in the UK, and obviously you guys, I think, were watching NBC in the United States. And from what I could tell, M- NBC, where um, you know they were condemning the the protests much more than was the case in Sky Sports, where people like Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher, who have all the way through this Super League episode have have portrayed portrayed themselves as the voice of the fans and they've had a lot of uh, sense to say and they've they've done that very well they've, they've had they've handled that role very well graham sunnis was maybe the only person on the on the sky sports panel who was um i mean to be honest i frankly thought he was talking quite a lot of nonsense a lot a lot of the time um seemed like he was speaking up for the glazers some at some point saying that they've put in put a lot of money into the club which I don't know what he's been reading or, or, or watching that is just frankly not the case the Glazers have taken out a billion pounds in just in money just to service the debt that they put on Manchester United with a leverage takeover a leverage takeover basically as they got the, the bank loan through uh, leveraging the the assets of the club that they didn't actually own at that point and mm. leveraged that on, on the bank loan so yeah the, I think there was a stark difference in the coverage um, my personal perspective is that yes obviously the particularly the wounded officer i think there's one police officer who has a a serious injury that is uh, highly regrettable and um you know whoever has done that should face the consequences for that absolutely and and i saw the the footage of the guy throwing the the tv equipment as you referenced there ryan obviously not great as well but i don't think the actions of a couple idiots should mask what was large largely a non-violent protest and a highly Mm. effective protest i mean as in terms of non-violent disruption getting a football match called off is pretty much up there as something as effective as could be without actually causing any kind of real chaos and that seemed to be the end from the start the fact that they were they were blocking the Lowry and the Munich tunnel so if you've if you've been to Old Trafford you'll know that the Munich tunnel is where the team bus goes down and that's where all those thousands of fans were and it seemed like a very deliberate attempt to make it as difficult as possible for the the team bus to get from the hotel to, to the stadium so For me, it was a a highly effective protest. I know, Taylor, you and I were joking about the Glazers have probably just sat down. Joe Glazer's Mm -hmm. probably just sat down for breakfast with Tom Brady in in Florida and uh, (laughs) is probably not even noticed. However, I think they probably have noticed that this is the biggest game Manchester United have. Manchester United versus Liverpool. Joe Glazer will have had a phone call from someone at NBC uh, yesterday. And I think they will have they will have noticed this. Whether they do anything about it is another matter. Matter, but they will have they they know this has happened. The stated objective seems to have been to show support for
2: certain aspects of the club. Uh, Oleg Gunnar Solshire got his name sung or his song sung a bunch of different times. Scott McTominay, I know that will make you happy, Graham. As did uh, Bruno <laughs> Fernandez and a few other personnel. Less so the Glazers. Not a, long, a lot of songs in support of the Glazers. Um, those are the fans outside. But the fans outside the hotel, I think I was reading one report that when the police were trying to disperse uh, the protesters, one of the arguments they were making over the loudspeaker was, if you don't disperse, the game will have to be postponed, at which point more people join the protests instead of dispersing. So I think, yeah, that goes to the idea that this was all planned to get the game postponed because it is this massive fixture. It's one that is kind of appointment television, and I think a lot of neutrals were probably turning in and then saw this instead, and I think it goes a long way towards maybe spreading that message globally.
1: It's interesting what you say, Graham, about maybe the Glazers getting a call from NBC because that, the, the the coverage did seem to be a little different in the US to the UK. There was a bit more um, a bit more tatting about what was going on. Um, some fans went too far, said Robbie Muster which I think is a fair point. The protests haven't achieved what they intended, Robbie Earle said, and Rebecca Lowe said uh, fans on the field are not representing the point of what these protests are supposed to be. And I kind of disagree with that because the the point of the protest is to disrupt the point of the protest were to get the game cancelled you don't get the game cancelled by holding some placards outside and not causing disruption you have to (laughs) the the, the breaching into the stadium was what got the game cancelled that was a security issue and I mean even if you you look at the minutiae of the situation people being on the field that's pretty dangerous because you don't know what they've done to the field You, you know there could be any number of Objects or missiles or things on the field itself, and that's a very carefully uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. kept, kept piece of grass. That, and you know, so that that would that would be a, a well, as soon as pl- people were on the pitch like that, I thought, here you go, they cannot play on that field and, today um, because they, they're going to have to
3: clear it. Yeah, and, and Sky were saying, I don't know whether this this was conveyed on NBC, but Sky were saying that because the, there were there were actually a few fans in the dressing room that the COVID bubble had been breached. Right. And so that was a big that was a big reason why, because the 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 crowd had been cleared by six thirty UK time. So it seemed like to me it seemed like the game was going to go ahead actually. Um, but I think the big factor was, as I say, that the COVID bubble had been breached. So that it, they kind of had to decide that it wasn't going to happen that day.
2: I can't believe neither of you has mentioned the biggest moment that clearly necessitated the game being postponed was that all of the practice balls were taken and the match balls also (laughs) taken, which meant that there were zero balls available and they would have had to go to the training facility, I think, to get more to be able to warm up and play the game. So I'm sure that was a huge part of it as well.
3: I like the idea yeah. of, of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer getting sent out to the local uh, sports <laughs> yeah, exactly. store. I, and how, how many how many balls are, well, Fred's going to be shooting from the edge of the box today, so
2: <laughs> maybe
3: 50. Someone, someone licked Harry Maguire's shin guards
1: in the dressing room. Can, we, can I get a pair of those too, please? Um, yeah, I can imagine that that would be a, a very amusing trip. But um, I, I've, I'm going to, this is my point where I turn it back to Wimbledon, as I predicted earlier. I have been in protests and very serious protests myself where my team was, torn away from me, literally um, uh, torn away to Milton Keynes. And the manner in which Wimbledon fans carried out their protests was always very peaceful and it never got violent. And that was sort of a point of pride for Wimbledon fans. We 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 took the high road, we never got violent, we never did too much disrupting. But it was also a negative for Wimbledon fans, I felt, because we never actually disrupted the money men. We, t- we protested and we, we were loud and we were proud and we did marches and we marched the stadiums and we did things at at, at, the, at the stadium, you know, turning your back on the game, all this kind of stuff. But never anything that actually affected the money men. And I think the key here is they have done something which does affect the money men. And the only way to affect the people like the Glazers is through their pocket. And I, that's what I'm going to ask you guys. Do you think this is enough? Do you think this is enough? Do you think that this can be brushed aside, this kind of protest by the Glazers? Because... Part of me thinks that the only way you're really going to affect change to them is to affect change to their bottom line. It's boycotting games. It's not buying merchandise. It's completely going cold turkey on Manchester United. Taylor, what do you think of that?
2: Uh, no, I don't think this alone uh, is enough. Um... But I do think that we may see more of this. I, I don't, unless they have better, like more organized response to this. The Manchester police and uh, the Old Trafford security personnel that they have, and probably the more that they hire, I think it'll be a thing that they try to do again. The fans and and keep trying to disrupt the schedule. I don't think they want them to have to uh, forfeit points or anything like that. I don't think that's the the objective overall. But I think if that's what ends up happening, so be it. Is I'm guessing the mentality because I think you're absolutely right, Ryan. That. It's it's the bottom line. It's it's the money, and I think there is an element of embarrassment. And yeah, the Glazers probably aren't feeling the pressure in Florida or wherever they may be. But as if this happens again, not even the the pitch invasion, but if you have play, like fans massively protesting outside the stadium and not letting buses through and making it difficult for games to kick off, it becomes a disruption. And it becomes a disruption they can't really ignore. So it's where I think it's probably it, it is a thing that maybe will continue to happen and maybe needs to if you do want to get the Glazers to at least issue some sort of a response, some sort of a reaction that is anything approximating a compromise.
1: Graham, perhaps you can speak to something a bit more generally about society in the UK at the moment because it got (laughs) me thinking that there's people in the UK who are unhappy with the government in general. They're unhappy with the fact that there are still lockdowns. And as I say, it's a bit more draconian in the UK still than it is in the US. So there's a whole different level. I mean, I think you were saying before we came on air that only stores had only just opened last week, Graham. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's yep. right. So, I mean, you've got you've got all that societal stuff going on and the fact that these, uh, these, these fans unhappy with the way their club is being treated. And if you look at the way maybe the European Super League embolden these fans in that, Hey, fan protest, it worked. We got something done here. So that's emboldened them to do things like this. And there's been, I suppose, a feeling of powerlessness in the UK among, among the proletariat, if you will. And this, is, this was just another example of hey, we have a voice, we have power here, and we can take back power. And um, it's, it's kind of, it plays into this ethos that I have, I think, that a club isn't owned by its billionaire owner, they're, they're the owner on paper but they're not the owner of a team. The owner of the team are the people who go every week. They're the community. They're the people who go to the stadium. They're all the signs saying that we decide when you play. And I kind of, I like that spirit because it's the fans who are the most important thing about a team and they essentially own it if you look at it from that perspective. But Graham, what, what I suppose what I'm asking is, do you think this is part of a, a greater feeling in the UK at the moment in, in, in that, you know, fighting against the power, if you will?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that context is is really important. In the UK at the moment, there's this growing story and it's got its, it's, it's growing arms and, and legs. Uh, there's different uh, aspects of the story every week. So last week, there's Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, uh, uh, allegedly taking money from a donor to uh, redecorate his, his flat in Downing Street. And there's a whole corruption scandal there. And there's been corruption scandals around... Um, public contracts being given to billionaires without uh, due tender and without the, the the necessary process being observed. And so it just feeds into this idea of uh, disillusionment in the UK with the, the billionaire class. And this is what the, the football clubs, the, the football um, owners, Premier League owners like the Glazers, like Fenway Sports Group, like Stan Cronkite, they have walked into this. They thought that the Super League, this was the perfect timing with the pandemic and everything, it was actually the worst timing for them because they, mm. as I say, they've walked directly into this and and it, it feels like people have had enough. And the more that these protests are effective, so they were effective in stopping the Super League, Manchester United fans have now stopped a, a Premier League game. I, th- I think I'm, I'm more hopeful than most that actually this is going to end in something. And I think the way it's going to end in something is through governmental intervention. So the, the government who are under pressure from their own corruption scandals, as I've referenced there, I think they, will, they there's been noises that they are pushing for this uh, kind of 50 plus one rule to be implemented into law for, for, for owners of British football clubs. I think they might push for that in a way to reduce the heat on themselves for other corruption scandals. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that th- if this continues, that, that that movement will grow and grow and grow. And I really do think that, that that's a realistic scenario where that gets written into law. And all of a sudden, these clubs don't become so attractive to the billionaires. So I'm not saying they're going to flee overnight. But if they have to answer to fans on their own boards, and as I say, they're not as attractive, they don't have their own way. And that's how you maybe correct the course a little bit. I always go with the idea that
2: there was, there really was this sort of like, like imbalance that was just sort of not spoken. That it was, yes, the billionaires own these teams, but it's the the fans that actually make a club. And it's that like the ownership have a team, the fans have a club, and that the ownership, at least of late, seems to have been like, ah, eh, what are you guys going to do about it? And that seems to keep being their mentality. And it's also, not to go too dramatic with this, but it's also the mentality of the end of every single empire is always like, ah, oh, we're too big, you can't, the Roman Empire will be here forever, what are you talking about? And then eventually you over overextend, you kind of stop listening to the people who are the ones who actually matter and then, uh, you know, the the goths come into town and you're in trouble. And in this case, uh, I, I do wonder that, like, yeah, that's right, I'm drawing a comparison between the Visigoths and, uh, I guess, Manchester United fans. Um <laughs> But it does feel like, like they, they knew these protests were going to happen, that the Manchester police and, and Old Trafford security personnel had been notified that there were going to be large-scale protests. And I think once again we see the reaction be, yeah, but what's going to happen? And, and I just think that it, it's representative of the way these people run these clubs or – like, I don't know, operate these clubs, and I do think that that disillusionment in both the government and these footballing entities isn't going to go anywhere and will probably only get worse and worse, and then it just becomes maybe who takes action on whom first. I don't think that we're on the precipice of the Glazers selling or anything like that, but I do Mm -hmm. think that the discontent is there in a more visible and volatile way than I think I've ever seen before, at least in my, like, brief tenure as a football fan.
1: I'd I'd love to see some change come about from this and like like you were saying, Graham, but uh, and, and the 51, 50 plus one voting uh, rule coming in but I do worry that uh, you know the UK has been under conservative rulership for quite a long time now it doesn't seem to be going anywhere and Boris Johnson is a, a free market conservative who ha- even had his doubts about you know stepping in and talking about the European Super League for those very reasons so I wonder if he will want to limit the power of uh, powerful rich people in that sense but yet you, what, you can't in- underestimate the importance the, 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 the political popularity that this would cause I suppose yeah. among, among the people might help him in that way so that makes me think maybe that could be realistic so we will see what I what I do know gents is that Arsene Wenger on being Sports this weekend says that when he saw what happened what was happening at Old Trafford that it was a revolution in football that was happening he was saying that fans are the most important factor in the sport and we know that um, Arsene Wenger was predicting the European Super League a decade before it happened he is the he, he is the oracle he sees all he knows all so if he says a revolution's happening I believe him
3: he sees all apart from the massive gaping holes in his Arsenal defence for the last And five any red years cards that his team get yeah <laughs> yeah but <laughs> other than that yeah <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah, OK, he selectively sees all, let's put it that way. All right, I think we've, uh, we've done justice to the, uh, the, the protest. We don't know when um, Man United versus Liverpool is going to be taking place at the time of recording. It looks like the fixture list is pretty, uh, pretty packed at the moment, so we'll see where, where that one comes in. But we do know that Man City were denied the opportunity to win the title because of this, because if Man United would have lost, Man City would have picked up the title this weekend. So they've uh, not only postponed this fixture, but potentially postponed a trophy party for Mr. Guardiola and company. Uh, when we get back, we're going to talk about trophy parties in Spain and Italy.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right
2: Total
1: Soccer Show, we are back. Let's take our attention to La Liga and the Spanish title race. It's a four-way title race. I believe there are two points between the top three teams at the moment. Sevilla are going to be taking uh, taking to the field against Athletic Club a little later uh, on Monday as we record. Uh, Graham, we had Atletico Madrid taking on Elche uh, earlier on in the weekend. Uh, it was, it was uh, Atleti creating quite a few chances. They had a penalty ruled out in the first half and uh, almost, almost giving away the one little league they had here
3: yeah yeah absolutely it came mightily close to uh to to drawing this game i, I think it was a, a game a few weeks ago i can't remember who who it was who it was against to be honest but uh, yano black saved saved a penalty in, in stoppage mm. time and so it, it, even though this was a case of the elchi hitting the post it was it was history repeating itself a little bit and just another illustration of how atleti are certainly running out of steam a little bit however that defeat by Barcelona against uh, Granada last week, which would have seen Barcelona go to the top of the table, seems to have just added to the sense that Atleti might just grind this out. There's only four games left of the season. This might actually be their com- be their comfort zone. This might be where they feel most, most comfortable as having to grind out these results. And-, and this weekend, we've got Barcelona against Atleti at Camp now, and we've got uh, Real Madrid versus Sevilla, which promises to be... One of the most interesting weekends in in La Liga, basically, ever. I can't really remember of a more interesting weekend where you have two fixtures with so much riding on the two games for four teams.
1: Yeah, it does feel like La Liga might might even be decided next weekend or we'll have m- much clearer answers on the way this title race is going to shake out. Um, as, as I said, there's two points separating uh, Atleti, Real Madrid and Barcelona at the top at the moment. And uh, as you mentioned there, Graham, um, Atleti taking on Barcelona next weekend and Real Madrid um, hosting Sevilla. So, and Sevilla being in fourth place. And they could be even higher than that after, uh, by the time that the uh, good folks listen to this at home. Um, Real Madrid taking on Osasuna. I don't know if you, either of you caught this one. It was 2-0 to Real Madrid. Eden Hazard, not only getting a start, but having a decent chance at goal as well, at least one that I saw from him. Um, Real Madrid, you wouldn't discount them from, uh, from getting maximum points as this season rolls out, would you, Taylor?
2: I mean, I would not. Given that anytime time you, uh, similar to the German national team, any time you try to write them off, you are reminded that that is not allowed and it is not permitted. Uh, <laughs> especially if we get Sergio Ramos, if he if he ever returns instead of you know sitting lovely on the sidelines uh, and it, like reestablishes his uh, complete dominance as he tends to do at the end of the season, uh, like routinely every single year, uh, I, I wouldn't like bet on Real Madrid necessarily, but I'm not sure I'd bet on any of these teams right now because Atleti, like that game this weekend, as, Graham already, as our, Graham already referenced, is is sort of like it could end up being the story of their season, that it's been, don't break, and they end up getting a result, but it could also be they start really strong and then taper off and barely hold on, and maybe like you look back on that one as being the time that they do finally start to come undone and and things go a different way. So I really couldn't say with confidence any way this one's going to play out, which is why I think it is such a captivating end to the La Liga season. Bayern Munich have a concept called Bayern Dussel, which is like Bayern
1: Luck, where it's yeah. always it's kind of like Fergie time, where you know they always get the luck fall their way at the end of games or at clutch moments. And I feel like Real Madrid kind of have a little bit or little bit of that, and I think Zinedine Zidane does. And that was kind of summed up by Casemiro. Almost accidentally scoring the second goal <laughs> against us as <Asusis>. soon as <laughs> I'm not quite sure what happened there. I don't even know if he knew about it, but he scored the second goal. You catch that one, Graham?
3: Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a first touch from uh, Benzema's pass through to him, and and then inadvertently the the goalkeeper uh, Herrera, who actually had a really good game, is is kind of wrong-footed and doesn't really anticipate the the weight of Casemiro's first touch actually carrying the ball over the over the goal line. Yeah, it was it was bizarre, and even even the fact that. Militao Melotau doing yeah. his, his best <laughs> uh, Sergio Ramos impression, and just mm. for a little bit of context, Militao is a player who looked completely finished at Real Madrid just just a few weeks ago I mean in January there was speculation that obviously Liverpool were looking for a centre-back there was speculation that he could go to Liverpool on loan that's how much Zidane didn't see him as a part of his plans he's been in really good form recently and this this as I said, was his best Sergio Ramos impersonation where he was brilliant all through the match and then came up with a really important headed headed goal which broke open the broke the deadlock for Real Madrid. So even down to that it just seems like Zidane knows to get knows how to get something out of players who previously just had there was no sign of that from them. I think if one thing makes me think of lockdown in years to come
1: or thinking of soccer in lockdown in years to come it'll be Real Madrid playing at their Alfredo Di Stéfano stadium and Sergio Ramos animatedly sitting in, in the stands and ha- the camera being on him for 50% <laughs> of the game. I think that's how I'm going to remember this period of my life the most, quite possibly.
2: And uh, Madrid stadium, Has he figured the out the way, mask yet? In, uh, that, that's my question with Ramos. Every time I see him, it's either like the nose is out or maybe it's on his chin, but then sometimes it's covering his face. One time it was covering his <laughs> eyes, I think. It's, it's, a, it's a variety there for Sergio Ramos. Well, he is a fashionista, so maybe he's doing it right and we're this all doing true. it wrong. Have you thought about that? This is true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, the doctors are wrong. The fashionistas are right. <laughs> quite right. Quite right. I know who I'm listening to on in this uh, global <laughs> pandemic. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> the other game that was pertinent this weekend in this title race: Valencia against Barcelona. Valencia getting us all excited by taking the lead against Barcelona here, um, but Barcelona eventually putting on the jets here. Um, Leo Messi getting on the scoresheet, Graham. Why does, and, and, and also getting, a, getting on the score sheet from getting a rebounded penalty from one he missed. And I, I can't understand how he can be this bad at penalties, but this good at free kicks because <laughs> he got the third goal. An unbelievable free kick off the post, which Ray Hudson, the commentator over here, Graham, almost exploded in joy, <laughs> even more so than usual when that one went in. Um, but it seems so odd that from 12 yards, not so good. From yeah. 25, the best.
3: Yeah, I I watched, I swear I'm going somewhere with this. I watched a a video recently where it was Andre Agassi talking about how he used to read Boris Becker's serve and how Boris Becker had a little tick and his tongue would go, it would kind of pop out when he was uh, throwing the the ball up before he served. If it was in the middle of his mouth, he was serving down the tee. And if it was to the side, he was going out wide. But the thing Agassi found most difficult was that he couldn't use that every single time or Becker would actually cotton on to the fact that he was being read. So he would pick and choose his moments to, to win matches against him. I like to think that Messi misses penalties to throw us off all of us off, off the scent. That in fact, he is essentially a soccer card reader and that, it's, that he he sees things that none of us see. And so he thinks, I have to miss, I have to miss this penalty. So it's not too obvious. That's my theory anyway. I, I love this idea that he's this like...
2: Like, uh, extra-sensory alien who has to pretend like he's he like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm not I'm not just like this uh, next-level being. I missed this penalty accidentally. Oh, well. Graham, this is a phenomenal theory, and I'm super into it. I also <laughs> feel like it's the inspiration for the scene in uh, Rounders with Teddy KGB where his tell is, is figured out. It's a very obvious tell in that one. The Boris Becker one I thought was ridiculous, and then I think about it, and it does kind of make sense. Because it's like, yeah, if you want your plant foot going where the ball's going to go, maybe you want your tongue pointing there as well. It all comes together. So maybe Messi just needs to uh, like use his tongue more to really direction that ball into the corners. <laughs> hang, Is hang that on, what Taylor. we're saying? That's my takeaway that, here. That makes sense to you that your tongue yeah. should dictate where the ball goes? Well, I can think... No, you're correct in in in, 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 uh, in bringing that one back. No, what I mean is that I was trying to figure out, like, why would that be the case? And I can picture that if in your head you're thinking, hit it down the center, hit it down the center, hit it down the center. If you do stick your tongue out, which I do when I run, I'm one of those people, like, I can see... That becoming almost like the focal point for that thought and then the tongue pointing down the middle. I mean, it had to be obvious enough for Agassi to notice that because it's not like we were in the days of HD cameras and and 400 different angles on things. So I'm assuming that it was like fully out and fully obvious. And so, yeah, it all makes sense. What's what's not to make sense, (laughs) right? I I like the
1: idea of a messy like at the blackjack table. He's counting cards. He knows the deck's hot, but he's not going to win every hand. He's not going to win yeah. every hand because he knows it would he'll give get it found out as an alien, as you say. I'm so obsessed like. with this
2: idea. I do love this. I think my my other uh, explanations for this would be that like he's not that bad. Uh, I think his the rate I saw was. I think seventy-seven percent is the
3: number that I saw reported. It's between seventy-six and seventy-nine. Uh, yeah, by but contrast, that, but see that's the perfect place to be. Whereas missed see? penalties yeah. are not costing his team too much, but he's missing just <laughs> enough to make us think just he's enough. human.
2: Yeah, but I think Neymar is on eighty-one percent, Ronaldo on eighty-four, Suarez on seventy-seven. So it's not maybe that bad. I think it's because it's messy when he misses. It stands out that much more because you would expect him to be automatic, and maybe it is that he he knows the tells, he's rigged the system, and he's not trying to give it away. Yeah. That I also think when it's a penalty there's almost like less thought to it because, yeah, it might be messy in front of you, but it's still a penalty. Just dive one way and see what happens. You can try to read him a little bit. But if for some reason with a free kick and there's the wall and there's this feeling of Messi can pull off anything, it's like a penalty is a penalty. Yeah, if he puts it in the bottom corner, that's what he was supposed to do. If you put a free kick in the bottom corner, that is very much not what you were supposed to do, even if it's what you were intending to do. So I think it adds this mystery, this like, oh, this looming threat to him that maybe you don't have as much when it comes to penalties. Hmm. Interesting theory. I like it. <laughs> Whatever.
3: Silenced. Or it's his tongue.
2: Who knows? Yeah,
1: he's not using his tongue properly. That's the way it is. Um, Matt Letizia, by the way, 47 out guess. of 48 career penalties <laughs> he, he put in. Um, uh, if you want to learn more about Matt Letizia, the latest episode of Soccer 101 is waiting there for you. Nice plug, if I don't say so myself. Um, if, when we're talking about these teams, these four teams in this four-way race, gents... I, I, I think I have the least faith in Barcelona because I think they're so up and down and they, they've got still got this defensive errors in them like the, the opening goal here with the completely open header they, they they conceded for this one. I feel like as Graham said it might be Atleti who who grind this one out in the end or maybe we're gonna go for Sevilla to to come ahead and and, and cause some chaos in this race. Who
3: who's got some predictions here? Graham, you got any thoughts? Oh, that's difficult. Um, do you know what? If if Barcelona hadn't, I know this is this is. Stating the obvious a little bit, if they if they hadn't lost to Granada last week, I, I would have said it's it's their title. I think they've still won seventeen of their last nineteen games. So if, despite that defeat, I think they're they're still the ones with the momentum. But every time you think Barcelona have have just they've got a game in the bag, like the game against Valencia, where they're three one up in that second half, and you think okay, job done, they end up in a they end up in a game again, and it's it's mm. it's three two, and Valencia are pressing for an equalizer late on. So I. Uh, I, I'm gonna go with Barcelona. I know that that's uh, in contrast to what you just said, Ryan. But I, I just think with Messi in really good form, which he is, um, that's maybe a factor that that decides things.
2: It feels a bit like st- standing on like one side of a river that you have to cross, and your options for getting across are like there's a. There's like a, a, a boat. There's like a raft that's been duct taped together. There's a rickety bridge that seems like it might fall over. There's like a hot air balloon flown by a drunk pilot. And you've got to choose one of them. <laughs> and every single one like, looks better than the other until you actually look at that one thing. And then you're like, I, I don't know if that's the way I want to get across this. And every single one of these teams... I taught myself into Barcelona, and then I'm like, but I have seen them look very bad and very inconsistent, and there could be another period of inconsistency here. Sevilla have five straight wins, so maybe they're the ones to go with, but, like, then you're bucking history and expecting Sevilla to get ahead of these three juggernauts ahead of them. That feels, like... Like the one that I would most like to see happen, but also the one that feels least possible. Atlesi, we've already talked about. Real Madrid themselves, inconsistent. So it's all sort of a, it could be this, it could be that. I'm not sure who the drunk pilot is, but in this case, that might be the one I go. And I'm going to say that's Sevilla. So I'm taking Sevilla. Let's have them win this whole thing.
1: I was going to say who, in the analogy, who is the drunk hot air balloon pilot and whether it was Lopetegui or not. That was my guess. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: uh so it would be yeah uh yes i think it's lepetegui of the options available because diego simeone i think would i i think he would just like jump himself across and be he would do the 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 dutch pole vaulting thing where you pole vault across the river that would be simeone because he has that level of intensity simeone would be doing the dutch thing not the dutchman yeah no no definitely not (laughs) got it that'd be
1: too obvious (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like it. Well, I, I think I'm backing Atleti. I think I think I was getting Graham backing Barca. Are you, are you going for the wild card Sevilla there, Taylor?
2: Uh, I mean, that's the one I would most like to see, but it's the one that I think is, is maybe the least likely to happen. But yeah, I'll back Sevilla. Let's make that happen. crazy times we live in stranger
1: things have happened and could indeed happen uh why don't we turn our attention to a title race that has been settled it was settled this weekend Inter Milan winning their first Serie A title in 11 years ending Juve's run of nine titles very upsetting news that is um Inter by the way overtaking uh AC Milan, who had 18 Serie A titles, they've now got 19. They're now the second most successful team uh, in, in Italian history behind Juventus, who have 36 league wins, give or take a couple, depending on who you talk to. Um, it's, it was uh, Inter who would have been crowned champions on Sunday if Atalanta failed to beat Sassuolo. That is indeed what happened. That one finished 1-1. Inter winning the league on 82 points. Graham, Antonio Conte, Great domestically, not so great in Europe. It, it, the uh, the uh, <laughs> the reputation persists.
3: Yeah, and I, I think um, my theory here is that Antonio Conte, history just repeats itself, where he achieves domestic success in his first couple seasons at a club, and then ends up in some kind of a dispute with the the club owners over a lack of investment, and obviously. Naturally, you would achieve domestic success first, and then focus on European success. And so he always seems to flame out before he gets the the chance to actually focus on on uh, European competition. And and this summer it looks like that could happen again because there's talks, uh, there's uh, reports he's going to have talks with uh, Inter's uh, Suning Group owners this week. Um, they're in financial difficulty at the moment. Um, they had their their Chinese Super League. Club um, they they folded last year uh, just days after winning the Chinese Super League. So that, that there's a precedent there that's not exactly very encur- encouraging for 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 Inter. I'm um, not saying they're going <laughs> to fold, but I, I, I think Conte is is going to be disappointed in in the level of investment he's going to get. Prom he gonna, he's going to be promised this summer, and. Yeah, history could repeat itself. We're Inter with Conte at the, at the helm, kind of flame out a little bit next season, and but that could rely on Juventus getting their act together, and that isn't a given either. It certainly is not. And to Graham's
2: point, the the I think the one of the articles I read about this was discussing how, but they're expecting a two hundred and fifty million dollar like bridge loan from Bain Bain Capital, so there should be money. And it's just sort of when you hear a person like opening up a second credit card to pay off the first credit card, so don't worry, there's money to spend. It feels a little bit like that's not. That's not necessarily the strongest way to advocate for your team being in a financial position. So I think Graham is right that I think that second season tends to be the one where Conte does get more frustrated, does have more issues, and then how they deal with those both as a club, as a team, and then how he chooses to deal with them as an individual, I think will go a long way towards whether or not he can uh, make more progress than what, the round of 16? Is that the furthest he's been in a good amount of time? Sounds about
1: right. I, I think uh, the, the the bridge loan Taylor sounds to me a bit like a, a drunk uh, air balloon pilot uh, way of See? funding your team. Here we are. <laughs> so I'm, I am sceptical about that. But it he certainly did have some funding this season. It all comes back, indeed. Yeah, but uh, he did. Yeah, he did get some support financially certainly uh, this season. Mm-hmm. And you, you you look at the the, the squad that he's had out this year and. To me, it's the spine that stands out. It's Handanovic through. It's, you know, the, the, the centre-backs, they were screwing around, De Vries in the back being very impressive, Barella and Brozovic in, in the midfield being very solid, and, of course, Lukaku and Laura Martinez up top. It seems like you know, they have credible wide players here, but that, it's really important to have a good spine of a team, and that's exactly what has led to Inter's consistency throughout this season. Graham, are you, are you on, with
3: me on that one? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is a scenario, even if Conte doesn't get the financial backing that he wants this summer, if he can keep his cool, which with Antonio Conte is uh, <laughs> it's not always easy for him, shall we say, but if he can keep his cool, I think there's a scenario where Inter, even if they don't add much this summer, and even if they have to get rid of players, I think are still really competitive next season. So those players that you mentioned there, um, I would add uh, Bastoni as well, Barella, You know, yeah. if, they, if they keep these that core of players together, and get rid of the players like, uh, Art- well, I was going to say Arturo Vidal, but he's he's won nine out of the last 10 league mm-hmm. titles that he's won. So maybe just keeping him around as a good luck charm might actually be, uh, be worth it. But, you know, players like Arturo Vidal, Kolarov, Ashley Young, these kind of squad players who won't be on small wages, I'd imagine they're probably getting paid quite handsomely. If, if you can trim the squad a little bit and keep that core, then I think that might be the way for, for Inter to stay competitive, even if Antonio Conte isn't getting 100 million euros to spend in the transfer market.
2: And some of those names you mentioned, though, Graham, I think are worth kind of doubling down on for a moment just to take a look at what he's done with them because Mateo Darmian, Ashley Young, Alexis Sanchez I'm not just listing X-Men United players but players who maybe didn't seem like they were going to fit and he's found a way to get them to work within his system. Christian Eriksen is a massive example of that, a player who I thought was going to leave in January and because they weren't able to uh, reinvest much more, they weren't able to spend money in January instead Antonio Conte finds a way to get him working. Scriniar, I think was another one who didn't quite fit with what Conte wanted but couldn't just sit him and not have somebody come in, and so he finds a way to make it work. And I think that is a testament to what he's done with this team this season, that, yes, there's been money spent on some big-name acquisitions, and they have worked. Barella and Hakimi definitely, I think, paying for themselves, even if they're not necessarily being paid for outright. Uh, But I think the combination of bringing in those big players, that spine of the team, but also finding a way to make utility players work has been... A, a big thing for Conte and a thing that should definitely be celebrated because they've got a great defensive record. They've got two very good goal scorers. And Romelu Lukaku is somehow the like one of the best forwards on the planet, which is not a thing I necessarily thought was going to happen. But uh,
3: that's what Antonio Conte does, apparently. And, and can I just pick out Christian Eriksen there? Because he has come up with so many big goals. Yep. I, I mean, he just came up with one at the, at the weekend there against uh, Crotone come, coming off the bench. And it, 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 considering that Christian Eriksen was always criticised for one of one of the things that was it was uh, alleged of him as a Spurs player was that he didn't have that winning mentality. Well, it, he certainly seems to have it now. It reminds me of that Simpsons episode where. Uh, the the Mister Burns casino guy tells Bart to go and uh, create his own casino and yeah. then he does it in the in the treehouse <laughs> and then he turns up then he goes well he sure showed me, <laughs> <That reminds> me. <laughs> Spurs fans now looking at Christian Eriksen going hmm, there's that winning mentality that we told him he never had. <laughs> Or oh, even yeah. the drawing mentality,
2: which is like some sometimes is important. There was the uh, the Napoli game we covered on this on this show uh, back in like mid April, I think, uh, when he scores the equalizer. It's that laser into the bottom corner when it seemed like Inter were sort of not uh, at the races that day. So even finding a way to get a point to get a goal is not a thing that maybe Spurs fans were expecting or even Inter fans were expecting in October or November. But here we are with him doing that and Inter winning. I wonder if Ericsson is still in the Spurs group chat and he's sent them a picture with a, with a, with a trophy
1: and how that went down. I'd like to have known if that was a thing. Um, before we move on from Italy, gents, Juventus, let's quickly touch on them. Um, what, how seriously are we taking the decline they appear to be in? Was the PLO hire a mistake. They had a comeback win against Udinese at the weekend, but they're still kind of struggling for Champions League qualification. They're in a lot of debt. Agnelli, the uh, the chairman and owner, is the enemy of the world at the moment. It seems like it's not all fun and games, Graham, um, in Turin at the moment.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wrote a piece last week that I don't blame Pirlo for what's happened this season. What I do think, though, is it was a symbol of Juventus's. Complacency and arrogance, in that they saw they saw Antonio Conte's Inter, they saw Pioli's AC Milan, who had an excellent end of, of last season, and they somehow thought that hiring a rookie manager and with Pirlo we really do mean a rookie manager. He hadn't been in charge of a a youth team. In fact, I think he'd been he'd been appointed the under twenty three or under twenty one coach at Juventus two weeks before he was given the the senior job. He hadn't had a training session or a game or anything, so he was a true rookie manager. And Juventus somehow thought that that would be enough, that they would still be able to to win the Scudetto. I just think that's complete complacency. And that has seeped into their transfer dealings, which I used to think Juventus were the best run club in Europe in terms of finding players on the transfer market. That is completely gone. So I think they need a new manager. It sounds like Max Allegri's gonna go back to uh, to Juventus this summer. After two seasons uh, since since he since he left, what a waste of time that has been! If they're going to go back to Allegri, <laughs> what was the point of sacking in the first place? They've not progressed; they've regressed. But that 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 could turn Juventus into challengers. I also read that uh, uh, Donnarumma, whose contract situation is uh, reaching ahead at AC Milan, he's out of contract this summer. He's been in talks with Juventus, so that that's an ambi- that would be an ambitious signing that suggests that, that they are going to go big this summer. But there's a lot of work to be done. I did see this weekend
1: um, Jose Mourinho uh, quoting saying, "You know, I did I did manage it into, and we won the treble. But I, I'm a professional, and I would go to any other Italian team." Really, sounding it out there, and it made me think maybe he'll go to Juventus and he'll help Inter to another title. Maybe that's his uh, his, his long plan there to uh, <laughs> secret agent his way into Juventus. We shall see
2: about that. That quote made me so sad because it was just such a like I'm available, guys. Like it was it was just a like Jose. <laughs> Jose take some time buddy take some time and and figure some things out before you start throwing out like Italy Uh I was good there before right
3: there there used to Uh, be there used to be a twitter bot called the Kirbishly bot that used to uh, tweet (laughs) out I'm (laughs) available for every job in England (laughs) and that was basically Mourinho doing that yeah what happened to Alan Kirbishly? he could
1: have done more he won on Sky Sports didn't he Graham
3: he did but I I haven't seen him on Sky Sports for a while either so I don't I don't know where, where he is
1: Maybe he's doing what Jose Mourinho should have done and just
2: taking a bit of time, maybe take some time, maybe go and walk your dog anyway. I'm hoping that he's an active manager. God, I hope he's an active manager and we all just don't know it. <laughs> I don't Good think going, he is. No. I'm <laughs> so, as am I. He's not, he's not. He is not.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Well, on that bombshell, let's uh, conclude this part and we'll uh, come back
0: with some MLS
1: Total Soccer Show, we are back. Let's turn our attention to Major League Soccer. We had some big scorelines over the weekend. Dallas and San Jose both getting 4-1 wins. Orlando handed a 3-0 to Cincinnati during which we saw some classic Nani goal-scoring action. Uh, Let's turn our attention, though, to the Sounders taking on LA Galaxy, who I think are the two winningest teams in MLS. Yes, I said winningest. I apologise to people who speak the English language more properly than I do. Um, Something that struck me... As this game kicked off, Taylor, was the um, Jimi Hendrix cover of All Along the Watchtower, which I, I understand is now a tradition at Seattle, him being from Seattle, Hendrix. But they are wearing a purple kit to pay homage mm-hmm. to Hendrix. So why didn't they play Purple Haze? You know, the song that Hendrix actually wrote. That's what I want to know. I want answers, Taylor.
2: Uh, I'm going to guess because it's not as famous, and because Brian Schmetzer doesn't love it as much and hasn't publicly talked about it. But it's a fair point. It's a fair question because you—it it does seem like you want to go with the less obvious one, even if it's somehow more obvious, because then it shows that you're a true fan and not just playing the hits. <laughs> That's right. But <laughs> also, "All Along the Watchtower" wasn't a Jimi Hendrix
3: song. I'll, I'll, I'll put that out there. I'll put that out there for you guys. But, uh, a very So good. Do you like it? Is, have you got it? Have you got it, Graham? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, it's, I've been trying to buy it without getting it shipped over from the states, but no one, no one has it in the UK yet. But as soon as I have it, it'll be on my OnlyFans account.
1: Yes, Graham is top 0.1% on OnlyFans. I very much recommend looking at his account. The subscription uh, is very, very good value for money, I would say. And who else is good value for money? I'll tell you, the Seattle Sounders. They were very impressive in this one. A statement win, I think we can call this, Graham. Uh, Some good stuff uh, from Rui Diaz up top with a couple of goals in this one. Very impressive. And getting getting support from Brad Smith is left Wingback, who was uh, very much punishing that flank. Up uh, for the galaxy,
3: yeah, absolutely. Rui Diaz, who now has four goals in three games for the start of the season, not the only was uh, not the only uh, opportunistic penalty box finisher who has uh, had a good start to the season. And um, Chicharito here in this one was just completely isolated. I thought the system from the Sounders worked really well. You mentioned Brad Smith there. Uh, uh, the, the back five from uh, Schmetzer was 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 brilliant, and the the two wing backs with Smith and, and Rodan on either side. I just thought LA Galaxy couldn't, couldn't handle it all the way through the match. I watched this one this morning and it just felt like the Galaxy didn't... What did they offer? They had two shots on goal, I think. They were completely suffocated by the Sounders and a little bit of a reality check for them. We didn't really know how good the Galaxy were after those first two wins of, of the season. I think now we have seen them up against a team in the Sounders, under Schmetzer, who's obviously been there for a number of years. This this team is very much set in a structure. They're well-coached side. And I think now we've seen the Galaxy. They've t- they've still to add that to their game. Um, and it's probably unrealistic to expect them to be at that stage after only a few weeks or a couple of months under Vanny. So, as I say, a little bit of a reality check for them.
1: Yeah, reality check and a steep learning curve maybe for them. And next weekend, by the way, El Trafico, LAFC, coming up next Saturday. So uh, the the learning curve will likely continue. Taylor, it it seemed like the, the Galaxy were unprepared for that 5-3-2 almost, and it seemed like Chicharito were just coming up against
2: three defenders every time he tried to do something. Yeah, I mean, I think they were unprepared across the board for that for that setup, which is odd, because it seems to be one that Seattle have uh, been utilizing, utilizing well. And in this case, even when they make adjustments, they make the triple change at halftime, and uh, what I saw was more of a four-four-two in the second half with Sasha Kleshton the deepest, which is not a thing that I ever expected to say. Uh, but even then, the way the Sounders set up, it always gave them... Uh, basically an extra man in the middle, and they were able to always have coverage out wide. So to Graham's point, I think it really did suffocate Galaxy any they tried to build out. And really, any they tried to have any established possession, the only way they could get it was with Chicharito essentially dropping 20 yards deeper to try to be an outlet, which sometimes he was, and sometimes that worked. Sometimes he was tracked, and it didn't. But either way, it means that he is then 20 yards further from the goal, and it's always going to make it less likely for him to score the types of goals that we've been seeing, which are the ones from, what, 12 yards out, or even less than that on occasion? And (laughs) and I think that as soon as you're pulling him away from goal, you're creating problems, and as soon as you're overwhelming the Galaxy in midfield, those problems are going to be further exacerbated, and I think the final scoreline shows that that pretty comprehensively
1: yeah and it might have even been a little higher that scoreline as well i think there was a i can't remember who did it but there was a corner and um the, there was a, shot, a chance that hit the post and oh, the yeah. bar which i think Stu holden referred
2: to as a double dink which i, I enjoyed that a lot as a phrase <laughs> <laughs> i think it was kellen rowe maybe with the flick on but yeah i couldn't believe it it did both and i enjoyed that uh bond of the other goalkeeper was sort of like oh okay, I'll pick this ball up. Like, he definitely thought yeah. that was going in and then sort of was like, oh, yes, I meant to do this the whole time. But I thought that game, that 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 one notwithstanding, I thought Raul Ruiz Diaz and his movement, that he was dropping in but linking up play, but then also, I think for the first goal and the third goal, both times, he adjusts his run on the fly and kind of, checks away from a defender or make sure there's still a gap between him and Jonathan DeSantos at least on the first goal who is supposed to be tracking him and I think his movement and awareness is so good that it was just another individual performer who I think the Galaxy maybe weren't ready for coming in and that level of form and that level of uh, ruthlessness I guess is the way to put it but I thought mm. again this was just such an impressive game from Seattle less so for LA who I realize now we've talked about three straight weeks we've talked about all three of their games and I'm guessing <laughs> that won't be changing next weekend but maybe after that we'll move on to a different team yeah I think
1: we'll have to cover them at least a little bit next weekend given the uh, Los Angeles uh, derby that is yeah. occurring next yeah. Saturday um, but yeah it, it was interesting from Seattle I thought those Rudy as goals the first and the third goal almost Man City-esque in some ways weren't they the way mm-hmm. he's as you say his positioning getting into middle and the, the, the crosses coming in from wide positions Seattle almost channeling a bit of Guardiola Graham are you buying that one?
3: A little bit and even the performance of uh, Kellen Rowe I thought in in, in the centre of the pitch I, th- I think this was his first first start of, of, of the season um, a player who's always been known for you know we, we always think of him as great potential he's now what he must be 28, 29 years old something like that um, and he's kind of stagnated the last couple of years and I, I thought this was a reminder of of just how good he can be so not just in terms of his, uh, his defensive work but driving the Sounders Forward as as well, and there wasn't much fuss around his signing over the the off season, But I think he could be a really shrewd addition for for the Sounders, and and even the, the, they're in really good shape. The Sounders, even down to the fact that Nicholas Ladero comes on for the last thirty minutes yeah. and just helps them control that game. The the, the the Galaxy were already done by that point, I think, but just they, they were completely done for those last thirty minutes. And when you look at the Sounders, what have they got? Two wins and a draw from the first three games, and Ladero's played. 30 minutes <laughs> that's not bad <laughs> that's not bad at all yeah. so I, I really do think they are in good shape the sounders they kind of look like the team to beat in in the west well let's uh, excuse the sounders while they kiss the sky while they
1: kiss the sky Jimi hendrix reference there jimmy hendrix from seattle as they are uh, letting it be known this season certainly uh, gents any more on mls before we move on to our injury time taylor
2: anything more from you, from you sir most i'm just wondering what a nirvana kit would look like would it would it just be oh. like te- tears and angst? I, I don't know <laughs> what else you'd throw in there. It would have some bleach It'd be on torn it. I imagine somewhere. there'd be rips. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> yes, yes. I like that. Thank you for that, sir.
1: You're welcome. Let's go into injury time. Graham. it's your time to shine, baby. Old Firm, the 416th Old Firm of the season, ended uh, 4-1 to Rangers, um, put Rangers 23 points ahead of Celtic and four short of 100 points with the title secured already long ago. Rangers also going uh, will be two games away from being unbeaten in this campaign. So bully for them, Graham. but pretty embarrassing for Celtic at this point.
3: Yes, and this very much felt like the end of an era for Celtic. They are currently without a manager, or at least a permanent manager. Interim manager John Kennedy is is pretty much... uh, It's 100% he's not going to be getting the the job full-time. And Scott Brown playing his final Old Firm derby. I know, quite incredible, that he's not going to to play another one of these games. But on this performance, he very much looked like a... uh, a 35-year-old who is going to become Aberdeen's assistant manager next season. Um, he, he very <laughs> much fit that profile with his performance here. And even players like Christopher Ayer and Odson Edward, who are, are probably Celtic's two most valuable players in terms of their transfer market um, worth, they're likely not going to be at the club next season. So everywhere you look, this this really feels like the end of a cycle for Celtic. They've got a huge amount of work, even down to the fact that Peter Lawwell, their chairman, is has, has actually already gone in and a guy... Dominic Mackay, who's come in from Scottish Rugby, he's getting his feet under the desk. They're going to have a new manager who they still haven't appointed, by the way. Eddie Howe has been the, the, the target for about two months now and still nothing has happened. So I'm not sure what's going on there. And they'll probably like to ha- likely have to rebuild their squad as well. So th- it's, it's really, um, I wouldn't say bleak times for Celtic because... Th- This season has been quite bleak, and I think there's some encouragement now that there's going to be a start of something new. But there's no guarantee that next season will be that much better than this season.
1: Oh, dear. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the question, I suppose. What chance do they have of being competitive next season, Graham? I suppose it's a bit of a crapshoot to answer that at the moment. Um but what uh, what I do know is Scott Brown 44 old firm games I believe he's played. Uh, 42 of them this season. So um it's, it's <laughs> a, an end of an era for Celtic certainly. Um the other thing I wanted to mention in injury time gents is Ajax who were crowned Dutch champions this weekend with a 4-0 win over emmen It's their 35th championship. They did also win it 2 years ago which was the last time this Competition technically concluded because last year's title was called off. Uh, Eric ten uh, Eric ten Hag also getting his new contracts uh, in, in the books earlier. That was earlier last week, I believe it was. So uh, bad news for Tottenham, good news for Ajax.
2: Uh, Taylor, anything else from you, sir, for injury time? Uh, just to say that we have, what, new champions in Scotland. We're going to have a new champion in Italy. There's uncertainty about who will win in Spain and France. We're going to have a new Premier League champion as well. Uh, Ajax getting their second straight title, I guess second of three since last season was uh, suspended, which I think is my way of saying that it is the Bundesliga now the least competitive league in Europe? Is that where we are? Until Jesse Marsh wins it next season. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, Graham
1: there we go you're so welcome. we're going to have to wait a season for that one to get uh, to heat up and get competitive but uh, we'll, we'll certainly look forward to that it's been a wonderful weekend review I've, I've, I've had some technical difficulties on my end listener, I'm not sure that's going to be passed on to you but I apologise if they were but for the meantime, Graham, thank you very much for joining us once again sir and thank you for bringing
3: more Scottish delights Old Firm and otherwise you're very welcome you can always count on the Scottish delights from me so to speak
1: <laughs> And those Virginia delights from Taylor Rockwell once again, sir. It's an honor and a privilege once
2: again. Thank you, Taylor. Right back at you, buddy.
1: Bye!